Hello, and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. We're back this week with another episode. Today, speaking with Archer Vox, author of The Five Keys, 12-Step Recovery Without a God. Archer is also the author of Alcoholics Anonymous Universal Edition, a secular version of the big book, reviewed not long ago by our own Bob K. We'll link to that in the podcast. Without further ado, Archer Vox. Hello, uh, joining me today is uh, Archer Vox. Archer is a recovering drug addict and alcoholic and the author of two books for the AA recovery community. One of those books, The Five Keys, 12-Step Recovery Without a God, is the focus of our podcast today. Welcome, Archer. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, Good morning, John. It's a pleasure to join you today. AA Beyond Belief is a world-class resource for the agnostic, atheist, and freethinker communities. I, I like to think I'm a part of that, and being able to make a contribution here is wonderful. Well, thank you very much. It's, a, it's really an honor to have you on. Uh, I read your book. I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, why don't you go into a little back, background about yourself, Archer, uh, talk about your path into AA before we start um, getting into the details of your book. Well, uh I had an ideal childhood, at least maybe somebody looking from the outside up until I was about eight years old, and then it blew up. Uh, My father developed bad alcoholism, and when he was 35, lost a great job uh, with a Fortune 500 company due to indiscretion related to alcoholism at work. He went off, disappeared, went to live in his sister's basement and practice his alcoholism. My mother at the same time was developing delusional paranoid schizophrenia and within that same six month period she was institutionalized. Now when I say schizophrenia, it's the type of schizophrenia where she would see things, she had illusions about people following her, airplanes spying on her. She went from a very, very articulate, well-dressed kind woman to a dark, brooding, unkempt person, kind of the person that you see in films and movies as depicted as somebody who's insane. Mm -hmm. She would sit in the front window of the house and look out, and she really believed that the people were (laughs) uh, spying on us. And uh, both my parents were smart, polished, articulate people, but they were very sick people in different ways. And uh, it's linked to their upbringing in genetics and Uh, My situation's linked to that as well. Next 10 years, I spent alternating living between the schizophrenic and the practicing alcoholic. No physical abuse, no sexual abuse, just crazy, chaotic lifestyle. You know, 12 schools between the first and the 12th grade. I went to three schools in the seventh grade, (laughs) that kind of thing. And it was all divorce, moving, death, alcoholism, and schizophrenia. The outcome of that was an instant gratifier. Uh, I became, I'm confident, a controlling person, not trusting of anything, and a whole list of character defects that we won't spend a lot of time on here. Mm -hmm. But the the one thing that's important to mention is that I didn't know I was like that. I look back, I can't recall thinking of myself as one of those people I just described. I just adapted along the way and made it work. And that plays into my addiction later on. I was introduced to mind-altering substances when I was about 13. 
uh, amphetamines. Uh, at the time, they were prominently called diet pills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I started taking drugs very young, took every drug on the planet between the time I was 13 and when I was 20, everything except uh, cocaine and heroin, uh, hallucinogens, barbiturates, amphetamines, all the forms of smoke, anything you could think of just about, including Freon and uh, even at one point sniffing glue. Mm -hmm. But with these drugs and uh, the same thing as my character defects, I didn't know that I was picking up a coping mechanism. I was using these things recreationally, I thought. But what was happening, I was out in the world with my new uh, character defects. And along with that, I was taking on a coping mechanism. And by the time I was 20 years old, it had its hooks in me. And when I say have, have its hooks in me, uh, drinking was as much like breathing. And I would get up in the morning, I would say to myself, not going to drink today, I'm going to have a productive day, you know, and by uh, five o'clock, I'd be sitting in the parking lot of uh, one of the various uh, party stores, drinking out of a bottle of vodka, go home, take some pills, smoke weed. And uh, I really never knew how all that happened. I'd lost my decision making over it. There's science behind that as well. If you mm -hmm. poke around out there, I lost the decision making. I started into college very Fortunately, I got a great education. I went to a top university in my field. Uh, well, I, I had a great fortune when I was a teenager, and even though I moved around a lot, I associated with uh, a lot of nerdy kids mm -hmm. who liked taking drugs, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the philosophical sort. And for some reason, I managed to get a, a good education. But I started out taking drugs, alcohol, and smoking pot as a coping mechanism along with my career. So I'd work 12 hours a day. I managed to keep myself pretty straight when I was in the workplace and uh, had a lot of responsibility. But then every time I could in the cracks, I was drinking and drugging and a lot of trouble came with that. And uh, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the crash and burn because mm -hmm. I don't think it's productive. What got me into AA was an intervention and uh, at that time, I was going insane, I think. I was losing myself, and I was willing to listen to what the people uh, had to say. I had reached my point of desperation, and I went into inpatient treatment. When I got out, I went into an outpatient program. I was presented with the AA material and very put off by it. Yeah. I'm, I'm agnostic, I'll call myself. Okay. It, but... What occurred is I ran into this material that was, and I'm going to call it the God stuff for the rest of the discussion, okay. here, because I think everybody listening probably know what I'm talking about. Sure. I was very put off by it, but I had the great benefit of having coaching from one of my inpatient uh, supervisors who happened to also be agnostic. He gave me some pointers on how to look through the material and to work it, and I had the great fortune of benefiting from the program. Today, I'm very active in the recovery community. I work with some family groups who have young people struggling. I work uh, with some adult groups who have members in their family struggling. And I started writing and uh, the five keys as a product of that. Okay. So um, who's the target audience for the five keys? The target audience for the five keys are 
really two out of three groups that I will describe. In my experiences in the recovery community in, in terms of newcomers coming in the door, there's one group that has anchors in formal religion. That is, they have an affiliation with religion, they have comfort with their God, and when they're presented with the AA materials, and when I say AA materials here, by the way, I'm generally speaking about the big book, the 12 steps, the 12 and 12, okay, right. and, you know, and the core of sanctioned materials that's out there. Mm-hmm. But that group, when presented with that in the program, these people are comfortable with their God and comfortable with their religion, and they're able to jump in and start working the program. Mm-hmm. Then there's a second group, people who had religion in their lives at some point, and I did. I mean, I, I was in Lutheran training up until I was uh, 13 years old. I attended church, things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, but this group of people, they are comfortable originally with a religion, but lost it at some point. So they're not looking for a recovery po- program that's faith-based. They're looking for something that has a little more of a technical foundation and something that will help them with their addiction. But they're not looking for another affiliation with a program that is based on religious content. Then the third group of people are people who have no affiliation with a religion or a belief system whatsoever. And they're newcomers coming in the door, and when they see the uh, materials of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're presented with something very unusual to them. Of course, out in general society, they hear God and mm-hmm. prayer, and they have friends and associates who are have an affiliation, but they don't have a concept of it. The typical approach with the groups two and three here, the people who had religion and don't anymore, and the people who have no affiliation, the typical approach with them in AA is, this is not a religious group, it's yeah. a spiritual group. Pick your own higher power and trust things, right. and it will work out for you. And uh, as you know, many of these people walk away because yep. this, you know, this not always working. Yeah, no, it's not always working. Uh, it's inadequate, and I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. I could have been one of those those people had I not had the benefit of some great coaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, something maybe we'll talk about a little later is, as the spiritual demographic in the U.S. is changing. Uh, this type of coaching is going to have a higher and higher failure rate. And by spiritual demographic, Mm. I mean the amount of the population that's actually affiliated with any religion whatsoever. Right. The book, The Five Keys, uh, was designed to take a fresh approach to mentoring those last two groups, to mentoring the groups of people who walk in the door and are put off by the God stuff. Okay. Um, What's fresh about it? Number one, Provide them information that's rarely provided when they're first introduced to AA. Yep. Number two, give them information that will broaden their view of AA. Give them a deeper, richer view of what the program's history, yeah. you know, and, and what it does for you. And third and very important, do it in a very short, easy to read mm-hmm. format, you know, that's designed for that struggling person. I mean, when I look at myself when I first walked in the door, I wouldn't have had any propensity for reading a 300-page <laughs> yeah. you know, treatise on how to work the program right. without question. <laughs> right. That would, that would have been very tough. Yeah. And the difference here, you know, hopefully, if you have somebody uh, who is in group two or three and they run into this, the idea was to have a book that you could hand somebody, they could read quickly, and then maybe make a different 
turn at the fork in the road in terms of working yep. the program. Yep. Yeah, that really makes sense. Um, and I think I think this is something that um, people will find very useful. I I think that in our group here in Kansas City, we find a lot of the people in those those last two categories that um, you know find us, and many of them are looking for a way to make the Alcoholics Anonymous program work for them. And um, so we, you know, have tried various things using different books and um, alternative steps and so forth. But a lot of people kind of get lost and they just look at the steps and they don't even, they don't even, they can't even, they can't, they can't even begin to figure out how to make it work for them. So it's kind of nice that you had to kind of lay out in the beginning of the book, you know, the background of Alcoholics Anonymous, the history behind it, kind of putting things in context for people so they can understand that, yeah, this is why we have this religious language, but this is what, this is what you can, you can do with it. Exactly. So, I wonder, would you like to go into a, an overview of each of the five keys that you cover in the book, and, and maybe we can talk about those? Sure. Um, what I'd like to do maybe is uh, just give you a little bit of background before I go into the five okay. keys, give, give you a little bit of background on what led me up to writing them, because I think then you'll appreciate the content Gotcha. Okay. even, even more. Um, there's a few things. First of all, in my personal reading outside of the program, I read a lot of great material about AA that was never brought to me as a newcomer. When I was an inpatient, I got a little sprinkling of it from some of the inpatient process. And uh, nothing about AA's place in history, nothing about what a spiritual transformation is. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know how that's battered around. If you ask yeah. anybody what a spiritual transformation is in AA, you're guaranteed to get a different answer. Yeah. The second thing is that none of the information that was out there uh, outside of big book introduction, you know, in the first 164 pages, 12 and 12, none of that material, none of that extracurricular material I just mentioned that I ran into got into the program in any organized way. I'd call it folklore, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Some of the elders, perhaps like myself, have done some reading and then we'll bring a tidbit to the table, and then you'll hear it being passed around. Um, and you got to cut the people some slack, though. We are all volunteers. It's a volunteer program. Right. There's no there's no formal training. And uh, so you really need to default to whatever the sanctioned material is, and that tends to be the big book. Yeah. So most, most people are handed that. The third reason that brought me to writing the five keys is that AA World Services... And you and I had a brief discussion Mm -hmm. uh, when we were introduced to each other about the fact that AA World Services isn't making any effort to modernize the material. You know, the approved AA literature is the same as it's been for, you know, decades at the core. And modifying it and modernizing it and bringing in some of this other history would be very, very doable. Mm-hmm. But AA World Services chooses not to do it, and you know, I think there's three reasons for it. Yeah, One I found that. And go ahead, Archer. No, go ahead. No, I found that interesting because I was, I was, when I was reading this, you were talking about why AA World Services doesn't make a change, and if I understood what you were saying, it's basically because you know they're selling a lot, they're selling a lot of books, and they don't want to. I guess create doubt that 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 maybe the original book wasn't right or something. Is that am I reading something in there that I incorrectly? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I think one of the main reasons they don't want to change it, they have something that 
seems to be working well. Mm. There's millions of copies worldwide yeah. in multiple languages. And I believe they don't want to introduce doubt into the, into the process by having alternative materials out there. Yeah. Materials that conflict with that or start introducing doubt about higher power and God. Mm -hmm. So it's, but it's low risk for them to take that posture. Right. Particularly what I'm going to share with you about the changing spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, demographic in the U.S. It's very low risk for them to take that. But there's two other things. They don't have a motivation to do it. You know, unlike many, I'm going to say enterprises, right. corporations, and places that have actual incentives to modernize or incentives to do product development, <laughs> for yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah. There is no motivation there. There's no hierarchy of things. And, and that also comes with the uh, volunteer nature of the organization. Mm -hmm. And even though some people are probably compensated in central office, it's not the kind of thing that's going to motivate you to step up your product line. Right. But last in fact, in the organization that they have at a, a central office, they may not have the skill set to do it. Oh. it, it you know, and I, I've left that out of the book because mm -hmm. that sounds a little yeah. hypercritical on my part, but I've managed functions like that in my lifetime. And it could be that the people that are in that chair can't create the vision for doing it and seeing how to get there. There right. are people out there that could, I mean, I'm all in if they decide to do it. I would be on whatever group of people they would like to invite. I would be willing to. And it's like AA is almost like its own government. You know, we, we have a bureaucracy that we have to go through to get anything published. <laughs> you know, right. it's not it's not like when Bill Wilson first started out where he could just write the book and bring it to a handful of people. <laughs> right. Right. That certainly has changed. It, it, a very good point. I mean, and, and it is. And by the way, the people holding those, you know, 30 million copies out there, whatever, 25 million copies of the big book, mm -hmm. if you started uh, uh, toying with it in central office and publishing something different, you'd have 25 million different views of whether you were right or not. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you know? That's absolutely right. So the risk, the risk quotient goes up and up the more copies that are out there worldwide. Yeah. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why it doesn't change. And another reason that led me to writing the book. I figured I could make a contribution in my small way to providing people a little richer view. Uh, my last major reason for writing the book was that I was exposed to some information over time on the changing spiritual beliefs mm. in the U.S. And I mentioned that before. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is real key. It, in a Pew Research study in 2015, a comprehensive study on religious beliefs in the U.S., over a seven-year period leading up to uh, the study, the number of people in the U.S. had doubled that didn't have any religious affiliation whatsoever. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And when I say religious affiliation, in that group, there might be people who do prayer as they see prayer. Uh, there may be people that have some notion of maybe something bigger than them, but they don't belong to... Christianity, you know, Catholicism, mm -hmm. they're not Lutherans or Baptists or Buddhists or anything. That's doubled in the U.S. If you project out to about 20 years at that same pace, uh, we will start looking a lot more like Denmark and Sweden and yeah. 
I say that. I have no statistics on those countries except that they are much higher percentage agnostic and atheist. Mm-hmm. And we will start looking a lot more like them. And here's another interesting statistic that comes out of the research. I'm from a generation, if you ask the people in my age group, kind of the baby boomer mm-hmm. people, if you ask them, they will t- 83% of them will tell you that they have a religious affiliation. Mm. But the people born after 1990, about 36% of them will tell you that they don't have a religious affiliation. In other okay. words, for my group, it's 17%. People born after 1990, it's 36%. Oh. No affiliation. So for the young people, the younger people out there, they'd have people like myself potentially. Mm-hmm mentoring people who have no religious foundation whatsoever. Yeah. And and the trend is that the materials of AA, Big Book, 12 and 12, the 12-step themselves, will become more and more obsolete over time. The Five Keys is a short book. It's designed to share this information with the recovery community. In a nutshell, it's a book you can hand to, like I mentioned, to somebody who's struggling and say, here, try this out. Yeah. Try this information out. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a good way to, um, I think if a person's coming out of treatment to get a, a little bit of background of, you know, how, how this program came to be anyway, and then to figure out how they're going to make sense of it themselves. So exactly. Do you want to go into the, the keys a little bit now or, um, sure. I'll, uh, breeze through them real quick. I'll give you an example of each one. Okay. That sound good. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, The first of the five keys is to give you an objective view of AA. So key number Mm -hmm. one is to give you an objective view. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, there were 200 years of addiction treatment in the U.S. prior to AA. Many successful pieces of those ended up being carried forward into the AA program. Mm for example, the notion of mutual support groups. At one point in, in history, there were actually societies of people trying to recover who had secret handshakes. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> passwords and uh-huh. things like that. There was public sharing, although a little aggressive. They would have people stand outside in public and uh, give their names and yeah. confess their alcoholism. But There are elements of those that got carried forward. Probably the biggest difference of AA in the timeline is that they gave the person a way to stay sober as well as a way to just get sober. Right. And I would, in my personal research and reading, that's the one thing I would take to people. So the first key is just giving an objective view. The second key is giving people a little more information on the people who actually had an impact on AA. As an example, William James is mentioned in passing in the book. And then I say in passing, there's a couple sentences on him in the book. Mm-hmm. Abby Thatcher, as history goes, gave Bill a copy of what's called Varieties of Religious Experiences. Right. And Bill read that when he was in treatment. Well, that's all you find out about William James anywhere in AA. He's mentioned later on in the book once. Mm-hmm. It turns out uh, William James is a world-renowned psychologist and is a person who's known widely as the father of American psychology. I believe, as I recall, he taught the first course in psychology had ever taught in the U.S. at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And the book, Varieties of Religious Experiences, is not about the differences between being a Catholic or, as they referred to then, a Mohammedism. 
mm-hmm. person or Buddhist. As a matter of fact, uh, William James in the book discounts organized religion. By, that's the wrong term. He puts aside organized religion and says there's a variety of ways that people can get a religious experience. And by that, he means get empowered to get a source of new spirituality, a new notion of goodness. And uh, a person reading the book would never know that Bill had that kind of influence of somebody that well-renowned. And I think it's important for people to have that perspective. What I believe is that when they say God of your understanding or higher power, most people think that Bill stuck that in the big book in the 12 steps at the last minute to appease the uh, religious faction. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was kind of an afterthought. Kind of like what's been going on with the health care bill. Right. <laughs> you know, we're going to make some last minute revisions to, you know, help the Republicans or something. But uh, in fact, I think higher power has much more meaning than that to Bill Wilson. Higher power meant that you can have alternative sources of spirituality. And it's something that he got notions of that from William James. Right. So the book's designed to point out a few of those people and uh, the role they had in it. The third of the five keys gives you insight into the spiritual transformation. I mentioned before that the term spiritual transformation and spiritual awakening Mm -hmm. (laughs) is tossed around a a pretty liberally. Mm -hmm. There are various notions of it. So in the five keys, what I've done is taken and associated uh, the steps with various phases of the religious transformation. Or the uh, spiritual transformation. You know something, rather. Archer, something that I liked about how when you talked about the, the previous key and then you come into this one, the one thing I never really thought about, and I guess maybe I thought about it, but th- you, know, you were talking about um, the Oxford, the reason that our language is the way it is, is because they had that initial experience in the Oxford group. It's like if they would have had that experience in some other type of a thing, then the language might have been different. And it kind of gave, kind of gives you kind of a nice perspective as to why, you know, we're talking about a spiritual transformation, but their language was so heavy into the the religious aspect because I think the Oxford group's influence more than anything else. Correct, you're right on the money, and that's the only way that I am able to articulate how it became so Judeo-Christian in nature. Yeah, or the, the language sounds that it's the only way that I could intellectually. Uh, put a, a wall around it for people. Yeah, is to say it was. It's just a group that had an influence. You know, had it been yeah. Buddhist, what if they'd been Buddhist? Exactly. That's exactly right. And so it kind of helps put things in that historical context. That this is why that that is that way. But then you go in, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. But then you go into the spiritual transformation. No. And when I read that, I really enjoyed this because I have, I'm sometimes conflicted about my view of spirituality, but I like the universal principles that you had laid out. And as I read through them, I thought, yeah, I practice all of those things. And these are the actions that we actually take uh, as, uh, when we go through the program, when we work with steps. But didn't mean to interrupt you, won't you? No, you didn't. This yeah. is great. This is this is right where we should be in the podcast, I yeah. think, is having, having this exchange. I, uh, so the, the third of the five keys is to give a person something solid on what a spiritual transformation yeah. represents and uh, relate it to the steps mm-hmm. so that a person can, can look at it and understand that certain steps help you work on acceptance. Mm-hmm. Certain of the uh, steps help you work towards surrendering. Mm-hmm. 
and so forth. It's covered in the book, but it gives you something solid as a vision. And then moving on to the fourth of the five keys, I wanted to provide some universal spiritual principles for people. Yeah. Something that a person could look at and say, well, what's my target here? You know, it's my targets more than getting good with God. And actually using those principles as a higher power in itself. Exactly. It, that's exactly what they were put in the book for. We, I, I kind of refer to it as higher power, lower case, or mm-hmm. higher power light. Just something outside of ourselves. Something outside of ourselves that we can reference. So uh, being forgiving, being generous, compassionate, and so forth are good targets for ourselves, particularly as we go through and learn about our character defects. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is, well, where do I take myself? Well, I think the spiritual transformation is part of taking yourself there. Yeah. And then last of the five keys, I decided that I would provide a neutral version of the mm-hmm. 12 steps. There's a lot of uh, work that's been done on that out there. Uh, you know, Roger C. up at AA Agnostica mm-hmm. uh, has uh, put uh, work in that field as well as some others. But what I wanted to do was be able to give a person a little bit of a history of the steps. You know, it starts out with what was being done in the Oxford group and uh, with what at the time, you know, they they referred to those things as uh, they started out with the uh, four absolutes and then they had the what's called the five C's, which were confidence, confession, conviction, conversion and continuance. Yep. And you can see how it morphed into the program eventually. Then Bill and Bob uh, worked with an informal set of steps that morphed into the formal 12 steps. And what I wanted to do was provide the reader some neutral 12 steps that they could use uh, day to day in their recovery. And along with that, the last part of the book gives them a few tips on how to work as an agnostic or atheist out in your meetings. And that's not one of the five keys. That's a little tip section at the end. I thought it was interesting, too, when you look at the steps about where where they actually came from, because he, you know, uh, even in the big book, it does talk about how we borrowed from psychology and religion and all these and medicine. And as you go through the, the steps, you can actually see where, for example, like the inventory steps that was influenced by the Oxford group. And I guess the first step of admitting powerlessness, would that be, would that be coming from William, William James or from Dr. Jung? I think it uh, comes from James. Okay. Uh, perhaps Bill's notions that he got from James. It is part of, you know, the uh, Oxford principles mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. There's a little spattering in each, I think, because it's so key. But, but William James, right up front in the book, mentions that, uh, and by the way, I say the book, Varieties of Religious Experiences, 20 lectures that he did over in England. Yeah. Very difficult to read. It's I know. Old. I've, I've seen it. I've never, <laughs> ever tried to go through it before, though. Oh, it's a challenge. I, <laughs> I, what, what, I, what I suggest anybody who read it is, is skip his uh, annotations about who influenced him. He'll introduce a great point, and then he'll have eight pages of, of references. Yeah. If you skip those, you can do real well. I had to teach myself. Uh, but I think the notion... Uh, William James hits it directly, you know, that you have to be struggling, you have to be desperate yeah. enough to shut your ego off long enough to let the notions of, of goodness and alternative views in. And that mm-hmm. certainly was me. Yeah. 
Me too. You know, I, I would say you really approach this. Um, you really approach AA with great respect too, and the big book with great respect as you, as you write this. I think that people, you know, a traditionalist might be surprised when they read the title of your book to see just with how respectfully you approach this. You know, you really see this as a program that works if you work it. Um, and I I agree with you too that so much of this, I mean, it, people that believe in God would be comfortable with your book because these are all things that we do. And these are principles that we all have in common, whether you believe in a deity or not. Absolutely. And, and it's a great compliment that you would say that to me about the book, because I went into it writing, writing it with the specific goal of not being offensive to people who have a solid religious foundation yeah. or be, to be picking on agnostics and atheists and trying to refine their view of the world. It was to be respectful of the program and and acknowledge its great contribution. It's just trying to give a little better shot to the people who walk in the door and are put off by the materials and walk out the door. Yeah, I think you're really successful with that. Uh, this is actually something that would be perfect AA literature if they if they were to produce something um, in this day and age, because <laughs> it truly does. It draws on AA history. It explains how everything came to be, and I particularly like the um, the universal. Excuse me for forgetting what they are. The universal principles. Correct. Um, because I, I was reading through those things, and and I was ca- almost kind of patting myself on the back because I was thinking, yeah, you know, I. I actually do this. I actually believe believe in this. I'm a t- I'm a complete atheist, um, but and I reject anything that's supernatural. But um, I can certainly agree with all of these principles and the importance of them. Humility is is one of the most important for me. That I, I, I and I think only because I came from a group where that was stressed so heavily. Sometimes I use it as a club to beat myself up, but. But it's just really being honest with having a having a, a an honest view of myself, my shortcomings, and my and my um, my talents as well. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm uh, I needed a lot of uh, additional humility when I came in the program. I was really full of myself in terms of you know, yeah my, my knowledge of the way out and what are you guys doing? Who are you? And yeah, we don't even realize it, you know, um, when we when we come in. But it kind of makes sense to me now, and I kind of figured it out after a while. It's like, you know, as an alcoholic, I had to be pretty self centered because I was I was constantly thinking about the next drink or how I'm going to get out of whatever predicament or what kind of lie or excuse I'm going to need to make up. It was always yes. about me and solving my problem or crisis, whatever it happened to be at the time. And then when you get to that point where, you know, I can't do it anymore. Um, and then you realize that, you know, it, my self-centeredness was, was extreme self-reliance when self-reliance wasn't working. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm from the same school. We are, you know, at the core as we find out we're so much alike. Mm-hmm. We we had the same issues, and what the program's done for me uh, is helped me with uh, my character. Yeah, you know I'm uh, I have a better character than I used to. My interface with others is significantly improved, and that comes through like you let off with here uh, uh, the humility. Yeah, I'm more more focused on them and less focused on uh, Archer. And I think character building is incredibly important, and it makes life um, more rewarding. You know, I, I go through, you know, we all have challenges in our lives, and, I'm, and I've had one recently, 
but I look back on how I've handled it, and I and I handle it strictly from relying on what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm really glad that I'm able to say, yes, this is a failing of mine, because by doing that, it gives me the challenge to, to somehow um, move beyond that. And it's a real rewarding way to live. But I, I can do that because of, the, of what I've learned here in the program. So really good stuff. And, and you think that there is some science behind this. For example, you were talking a little bit about how when you do live this way, it does kind of make, make it easier for you to stay sober. Did, did you do any kind of research about the science behind this kind of stuff? Not specifically the science as in science biochemistry Mm -hmm. or uh, physiology, but uh, I believe that having something where you are regularly attending meetings, participating in the fellowship, uh, I have two or three guys now who are co-sponsors with me. Mm -hmm. We have lunch and things like that, and that's all an outgrowth of the fellowship. Yeah. And I think that type of thing provides a an environment that's conducive to what the book refers to as maintenance of my spiritual condition. And, and having that, uh, I, I believe that if you keep that in front of you, it keeps the biochemistry part in the background, because I think that's always nipping at you. I mean, for, for myself, when the drugs and alcohol and things got its hooks in me, I did lose that decision-making. It became, yep. I think, what they refer to as reptilian behavior. Yeah, right. I just did it. Yep. And what AA does is it keeps uh, the fellowship and, and the actions of the program keep the uh, thinking part of it in front of me and doesn't allow the biochemistry part of it to creep back in. Yeah. And psychologically, too, as, as an alcoholic... Um, as an active alcoholic, I was escaping everything when I drank. I think I, I think for a large extent, I, I did drink to escape to not to kind of shut things out, and then I, I I started just even escaping my every all the problems that I was piling up around me because of my drinking. But now I don't escape anymore. Now now I've learned to actually deal with whatever is in front of me, deal with the truth, and I think that. Um, Maybe we addicts and alcoholics need need to learn that, I guess, to ha- learn how to deal with the reality of our lives in a serene, calm, rational way. Um, and I guess the program helps us with that. Yeah, yes, it did definitely. I back when I was drinking and drugging. I mean, it's much easier to lie than it is to deal with a situation that's right in front of you, mm-hmm. and that's a way you know, in terms of the book that's out there, that's the way I walk around picking up the rocks. Yeah. You know, the drop the rocks book. Uh, You know, I I went around not dealing with things and they had this gigantic bag of rocks on my Uh back. (laughs) So you write so well. Are you planning on on writing anything else? I know you've you've also written another book, the Universal Alcoholics Anonymous, the Universal Edition, which I still have not read, but I've got it on my Kindle. I need to read that too. I, I Actually, somebody wrote me and told me they just bought it and they enjoyed it. But is there anything else that you're you're working on? At the present time, I'm doing some research on the subject of helping young adults with addiction. Oh, okay. That is, uh, it would be work for parents. Uh, it would be a, a short book for parents on the things they really need to know going into helping an addict who's a young adult. Okay. 
now you would you'd say archer there's a lot of material out there on that subject isn't there there is material out there on that subject i just re- read 14 books mm-hmm. in the field mm-hmm. but the goal here is to write something much like the five keys that's a quick hit yeah that gives uh, a, i've been through about 400 sessions now uh, at one of the rehabilitation centers here where i am i've participated in about 400 sessions with families in a room together, families, friends, and loved ones of, of people who are struggling with addiction. And these people are looking for ways to help them out. And there are some common themes that keep creeping up because there are people in the room who've had success with young people. And uh, they keep coming to the meetings as well to share that. And uh, the reason I'm in the room is to be a resource for the people. But in the yeah. process, I start getting interested in the subject. Yeah, that does sound interesting. It's a real need for that, too, with the heroin epidemic that we're having, the opioid uh, epidemic that we're having in this country. So, unfortunately, there's a big need for that right now. That There is, and it gives me an opportunity to weave in the benefits of AA and kind of carry forward the message from the five keys in an abbreviated way as, a, as perhaps a single chapter, just to give the struggling parents and loved ones of uh, addicts a different view of AA. Because if you think the AA community is deficient in underlying knowledge about it, if you go talk to people, parents and loved ones, and even people in Mm Al-Anon about the transformation that's going on in AA for the addict, it's even more removed, their Mm -hmm. knowledge of it. So if I can have some input there and have an impact in any way and be of service, I'm going to try to do that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for writing this book and for participating in this podcast. Um, I, I'm really happy that I discovered this because I'm going to be reading it again and taking it to our, our group. I just think it's a tremendous resource. It's a huge um, contribution that you've made to Alcoholics Anonymous and for recovering people to put something like this together. Um, so thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you, John. This was a great opportunity. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon enough with another episode for your listening pleasure. Until then, don't drink, go to meetings, and help others.